together as we're standing. Father, your word has great beauty and important, valuable commands. And our request is this morning that you will work in us for your glory. Lord, there may be people here who have no struggle with the topic we address today. Praise you for that. But help us not to check out, because you have more to show us here. And I pray that you will, by your Spirit, reach into our hearts, challenge us, change us, and sanctify us for your glory. In Christ's holy name, amen. And you may be seated. You know, of course, that they say that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And this morning, we indeed will rush in where often fools fear to venture. There are few topics in the world that are both over-taught and over-emphasized in some circles, and at the same time, completely ignored in other circles, but which have a powerful bearing on our lives. There are few topics like that. We're going to see one in this morning's passage God's Word has led us in our walk through the book of Colossians. This is not hand-selected for today. This is what came next as the Word of God has opened to us, to a passage on our sexuality. And we will, by the grace of God, try to discuss it with wisdom and with tact. So let's get started. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, a fire. Do you have a picture in your mind? Tell me. Is the picture that you have in your mind a good thing? It really depends what you pictured. If, if you picture a fire burning in the hearth, that's a good thing, right? It provides warmth and cheer to a home. A fire properly maintained at a campsite. I think about our, our, our campfire where we were roasting marshmallows at the family camp in August. That, that, there was camaraderie, there was happiness, there were marshmallows and chocolate, it was a good thing. But a house that's blazing or a forest set on fire, those are terrible things to behold. When I was a toddler, and I want to say somewhere around age two, maybe three, my family moved into a brand new house. My mom and dad had finally managed to save up enough money to not have to rent, And they, through a lot of their own sweat equity, built for themselves a nice little ranch-style home. And uh, it had a cute little fireplace in the living room. We moved into that home, and my, my brothers remember this really well. We moved in Thanksgiving week, and Mom and Dad got to host in their brand new house the family Thanksgiving dinner with the grandparents and everything. It was all really sweet. And a month and a half later or so, on January the 6th, a spark from the fire in that fireplace managed to get out to the nice new shag carpeting in the living room there in the 70s. And by the grace of God, I was sick that night. I was a baby. I was sleeping in my parents' room. I cried. Mom woke up. And when she did, she found that the house was already filling with smoke. She looked in the living room, saw the fire. We had time to get the family out of the house, and that was it. 
My dad actually went back in and thought he would be heroic and save some things. He nearly, and he, he always told us he remembers how close it felt like he came to just losing consciousness in the living room. Crawled out of the house. And within a very short period of time, our brand new home was destroyed. My, my middle brother, who seems to have the best memory of anyone in the family, remembers the sound of the front living room windows exploding from the heat of the flames. And that night, all of our clothes, all of our toys, my rocky horse named Spotty, all of my mom's photographs were lost forever. Is fire good or bad? It's very good. But only if it's in the right place. Fire is wonderful, kept under control. And Christians, every person has a fire that we have to deal with. If we're careful with it, we can live with great warmth and joy. If we let it out of control, we can be ruined. And that is the topic of our sexuality. In the book of Colossians, God has been calling us to live as people who have died to this world and who are newly resurrected to eternal life. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, the Bible tells us, has died with Jesus and been raised up with Jesus. And we have brand new lives. We have new hope. We have the promise of forever in the presence of God. And for the past several weeks, we've seen a beautiful focus on the grace of God in this book. If we're in Christ, we're not bound by man-made religious rules and rituals and restrictions and you know, things that God didn't command. If we have Christ, we don't need to seek out mystical experiences. We don't have to place our focus on the angelic realms and, and, try to, and try to curry the favor of spiritual beings. And if we're in Christ, we are made brand new. And now God's word leads us to consider and to celebrate grace. But the word doesn't leave us sitting still within grace. Now, let me affirm, just so you know, nobody, nobody does anything to earn their way to God. We do nothing, absolutely nothing to earn favor with God. We take no action that earns for us the grace of Christ. But God calls us, when we are rescued by Jesus, to live differently after receiving the grace of God. And sadly, the hardship is our new lives, though they're real, we are made new. They're not fully realized yet. We live in the here and now. We battle. We struggle against sin. We have to fight to keep our flesh and our minds under proper control. It's a weird place we live. We live already made new and justified by Christ. And not yet who we will be. And that tension will be part of our lives until the day we die or until Christ returns. We're already dead to sin, and we live putting sin to death. What we're going to do today is take a look at Colossians 3, 5 through 7, to see how we might better live with victory over sin, how we might better live with joy in Christ. And for you note-takers, we'll find in those three verses three points 
that we'll write down. They'll be very simple and easy to follow. Our first one is this. Kill your sexual immorality. Kill your sexual immorality. Listen to verse 5. I think you'll see where I get the point. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Are any of you, and I know a couple of you are, any of you fans of C.S. Lewis? Got a few Lewis fans in here, right? You guys know Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote another book that not, me, not nearly as many have read called The Great Divorce. It is not a book on marriage. In the book The Great Divorce, what he's talking about is how we have divorced our lives from reality. And the book shows us a picture of people who are given a sort of a field trip to heaven. And as the people marvel at heaven, they see themselves as very insubstantial, ethereal, almost wispy. In, they're inconsequential in comparison to the glorious reality of the true world that God created. And much of the book, The Great Divorce, entails the people battling through a decision. And the major decision is, will I let go of my sinful, meaningless pleasures in order to have something far more real and far more substantial. One of the characters in the book is a man who walks around, and again, this is imaginative, the man is walking around with a red lizard on his shoulder. British guys have interesting imaginations. And this lizard represented the man's lust. And everywhere the man went, the lust was whispering into his ear to distract him from the reality. Every time he tried to admire the beauty or to find his way to where he could be made whole, the lust, the lizard on his shoulder would whisper in his ear and distract him. Finally, in the story, an angel comes to the man and offers and asks him, would you like to be rid? of that beast on your shoulder. And the man says, I would very much like to be rid of it. And the angel then suggests to the man, great, I will help you. I'll kill it for you. And the man shrank back. He was happy to talk about having his lust under control. But, but, but killing it, now that, that, that's a bit harsh. That's another point entirely. The man didn't think he could live without this thing on his shoulder because it had been there for so long. He felt that were the angel to kill it, it would kill him too. And finally in the story, the man gives the angel permission to kill the lizard. And it hurt the man as he had feared. But then a change came over him. The man who had been insubstantial and wispy became solid. He was free. And then something else happened. The lizard that had been killed on the ground, it transformed. Instead of a red lizard whispering evil ideas into the man's ear and distracting him from what was real, the man saw a beautiful white horse standing there that he could ride away to the mountains to the place where he could live forever. And what was the point of that weird imagining? When it comes to sins like our own lusts, like our sexual sins, 
it is really easy for us to become used to them. And in fact, we begin to think that they're part of us. Sometimes we think of our lusts and our failings. We think that's what makes us human. And while we may be annoyed by them or inconvenienced by them, we might even hate them for a season. We're hard-pressed to want them to die. Does that sound weird to you? Consider how often you hear in our modern world people assuming that they are defined by their sexuality. In recent conversations in the public media, even, about gender and sexuality, we constantly and repeatedly hear people define themselves by their sexual feelings, by their desires, by their activities. The assumption is that what we are sexually, what we are in our desires, is what we are most deeply. And guys, can I simply say to you that this is very, very far from what God teaches us in his word. God does not ever say that you are defined by your desires, that your desires are the deepest part of what you are. Instead, God calls us to rule over our desires. There's a big, big difference. Back in Colossians 3.3, which we studied last week, we were reminded that we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. So, if you're a Christian, you need to grasp that your true identity is not found in the things you feel, not the things that you experience in the here and now. Instead, our true identity is the identity that we've put on in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. God has credited us with the righteousness of Christ. And what's happening in this passage here is that God is calling us to begin the process of moving into living the righteousness he has given us. So, as we consider how to live out the new identity that we've been given in Christ, we see the scripture begin to focus us on how we live in relation to our sexuality. And God's word tells us not to deal with sexual sins gently. Paul says to us in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in ourselves. And, And that concept of putting things to death is as harsh and as violent as you might think it sounds. God is saying, as the Puritan said, mortify, right? Put to death, execute in yourself, kill, murder, destroy these kinds of sins in yourself because you have died to them and made alive to Christ. Now, please note, please note, this is, not, this is a call for you to put these sins to death in yourself. There is no call here for you to be doing violence toward others who are living in these sins. The Christian faith is not one in which we do violence to others to call them to follow what we see in Scripture. That violence has never worked in the past. It will never work in the future. How do you help others be changed by God? You tell them the truth of God's word and you allow the Spirit of God to call them to Christ. But when Paul tells us what we're supposed to put to death in ourselves, he gives us five things there in verse 5. And there are a list of related sins, and every point goes one step deeper. Every point goes from the fruit down to the root. It gets us to the heart of the matter. So let's look briefly at each of the words here in the list, and let's watch the pattern develop. 
it says, put to death sexual immorality. The Greek word there, translated sexual immorality, is the word pornea. And the reason I say that to you is because it sounds familiar, doesn't it? The word pornea is the, is the root for our word pornography or porn in our culture. And what the word means is any kind of improper sexual behavior. Sex outside of marriage, homosexuality or homosexual activity, any other sexual behavior outside of God's intended purpose, purpose for marriage, a married relationship between a man and a woman, anything outside of that is pornea. Now, the second word, impurity, is a word that literally means uncleanness. You see, it might include your activities, but it also can include anything in your life that is unclean or dirty in a sexual way. So your thoughts, your imaginings, your words, your entertainment, all of these things can be impurity in your life. Then compassion and evil desires, and they're very similar words and very similar concepts. They have to do with emotions and feelings that burn in us. Now, desire is not evil in itself. But there's nothing good about wrongly directed desires. And then at the end of the list, at, at the root of the tree, so to speak, we find a word that I don't think that you expect to see there. What's the heart of sexual sin? It's covetousness or greed. To covet is to desire to have something or to possess something that's not yours to have. It's to see something you shouldn't have and to want it for yourself. And God calls that kind of greed idolatry because it places a person's desires on a higher level than God himself. Now, let's ponder the list in reverse order and I'll show you how things get out of hand. Nobody wakes up one day and just out of the blue, poof, they've committed sexual immorality with nothing leading up to it. it just doesn't tend to happen. The problem starts in his heart. The man covets. He wants an experience that he cannot rightly have according to God's standards. It could be a woman, by the way. Either way. He desires a person who appeals to him or who attracts him, even though that person is not his spouse. And once the desire to have what is not rightly his, that greed, that coveting what is not rightly his begins in his heart, then his desires, his physical and emotional desires are stirred. And those wrong desires will blaze up in a burning passion. And that passion leads to uncleanness. It leads to dirtiness in his thoughts or in his private activities. He begins to imagine things he has no right to imagine. And it's after that the man has given in to that kind of uncleanness and he's letting it roll over his mind, that's what leads him to full-fledged sexual immorality. I think most of us would admit we don't want to be guilty of the immorality that God has just described to us. But then the question comes, my goodness, how do we avoid it? How do you avoid it? By the grace of God, you fight against it and kill the sin at its source. If you want to avoid sexual immorality, you've got to kill the dirty thinking that's in your mind. If you want to kill the dirty thinking that's in your mind, you have to kill the passions and desires that are feeding that dirtiness. And this, by the way, is so often where we fail. 
we look at things or go to places where our passions will be stirred and we know it. We play with fire and we get surprised that we're burned. If you want to kill those evil passions and desires, you can't do so simply by saying, I'm not going to think bad, I'm not going to think bad, I'm not going to think bad. It doesn't work that way. You've got to go deeper. You have to trace your evil passions back to the covetousness and the idolatry that feed your passions. We must recognize, folks, that God is God and that God created us and that God knows what we need God's not against sex. He created it. Because God is the all-knowing one who created us, including our sexuality, God knows what is best for us. He knows what will give us actual joy. What does God say about our sexuality? The Bible's really clear that sex in marriage between a loving husband and wife is a beautiful thing. In fact, God says that that relationship mirrors the commitment that he has for him, himself and the church, between Christ and the church. Not in a dirty way, but just in the commitment, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the bond that's formed, in the love that's there. That mirror images the love of Christ for his church. God also says in his word that we're not supposed to satisfy our sexuality Anywhere outside of marriage. We are not to use our sexuality to possess other people. We are not to use our sexuality to manipulate other people. Now, Christians, this is complicated and it's, it's uncomfortable. I don't think anybody says, I just want to sit down and have a conversation about this right now. But you do see it in God's word, don't you? When we allow sexual immorality into our lives, we do harm to ourselves and we harm others. And if we want to get rid of the dangerous sin of sexual immorality, we've got to attack it at its root. We have to kill the desire to have what is not rightfully ours. And to do this, we've got to believe that God is God and that God is good and that God knows best. God says sex is only right for us to experience from inside marriage. If you're not married, if you're not a man married to a woman, there's no legitimate way for you to have sex. There's just none. And y'all, don't hear me judging you. We'll talk about judgment in this in a moment, okay? Now, let's get practical. How do we kill Or put to death these things in ourselves like the Bible commands. One more time through the list. If you are in a situation in which you are engaging in immoral sexual behavior, which is any sexual behavior between two people who are not married to each other, put an end to that right now. Either break off the relationship or get married. That's all you got. Wisdom. This is especially true. Well, I I was about to say true for men, but it's going to be true for both of us. Don't put yourself in any situation with another person who's not your spouse where sexual immorality could take place. You know, a a young person, a a young couple who puts themselves in a situation behind closed doors is not asking for good things to happen. 
Guard against the sin. Don't give the opportunity for impropriety. And then once you're there, go up the list to the next failure, right? Kill the dirtiness in you. Don't look at things that present sex in an ungodly way. Don't don't let yourselves be entertained by depictions of immorality. Don't, Don't look at or do things that arouse your desires in an ungodly way. And guys, the list is going to be different for each one of us. I mean, I know that. We're not all the same. But if there's something that you see that stirs your passions when they shouldn't be stirred, get away from it. And here, don't do things that arouse the passions of others in an ungodly way. And Christians, this is, this is where issues... You've got to understand that not everybody thinks like you do. I hate to put this burden on the ladies, but this is typically a lady thing. Pretty much because there's nothing actually attractive about the male body. Don't judge me. (laughs) Ladies, you need to understand that the way you display yourselves to others, you might think to yourself, oh, this is just really cute. But you have no idea that maybe you're showing something a little too tight, a little too much skin, and you don't realize that there are men who, when they see that, It's not right, but they see it as you advertising what your body looks like. And it can stir passions in men that you don't want to stir. And so there's an extra call here. I'm not asking you to be frumpy or prudish, but I am saying, look, we have got to be loving enough to others not to show off parts of our bodies that we wouldn't want them to see or that we wouldn't want them to think about in ways that they shouldn't think about. And I promise you, in the hypersexualized culture we live in, it's more dangerous. Things that used to be even perhaps okay push people to places they shouldn't be pushed now. So please, ladies, for the love of God and for the love of the men around you, cover up. Be careful. Be careful with the eyes and the hearts of men. And I would say that to you men as well. So gentlemen, don't go around flexing. But see, it's just funny when I say it to the guys. Be careful when you suck that belly in, boys. But in reality, it is true. There's no room for physical vanity. Eventually, you know what this does? This dirtiness and all that stuff that we're trying to watch out for? It takes us back to killing covetousness. You want to be sexually pure? Decide that you want what God wants for you. If you will surrender to God, it may feel to you like you're losing out. I can't let you kill that lizard you're going to find that if you surrender to God, that he has a plan for you and for your desires that is far better, far more fulfilling, far more joyous than anything you could come up with on your own. 
Now, you might say, Travis, how can you say that the root of sexual sin is covetousness and idolatry? Well, for a man, and ladies, I'm going to let you in on men here, often the drive toward sexual sin in men or to pornography in men, whether it's acted out or whether it's only in his mind, it's the desire to be admired, desired, worshipped. We want to be the center of the universe. A man often seeks to conquer. A man often seeks a conquest. He wants to show off to his friends what he was able to do. He wants to accomplish more than other men around him. He's not chasing, and even if a man may not be chasing women to, atta- to accomplish that conquest, he might be, through pornography or through fantasizing in other ways, build for himself a little dream world in which he's the king and all the women want him. I once heard a wise man say, have you ever noticed that nobody ever fantasizes someone telling him no? We build a universe in our minds in which we are God. And everyone worships us and is benefited by us and us alone. For a woman, the same sort of idolatry is possible. Romance novels or films show maybe a desire that's not so overtly sexual, but the concept of being adored and worshipped by a man who will sweep her off her feet and give her all that she would ever desire is very similar. In so many novels, the woman, maybe she considers herself ordinary and plain, suddenly finds herself the central desire of another, and he makes her feel beautiful and desirable. She's a goddess in her own right. Do you see the dangers? Christians, we've got to beware. Whether the desire is to conquer or to be desired. Whether it's to love or to be loved. Whether it's to look a certain way or to be seen by others in a certain way. If we're not careful, we will allow ourselves to become the center of our own universes. And God warns us that the moment we place ourselves at the center of the universe, we have made idols of ourselves, idols of our desires, and such a move is sin. And it always, always, always leads to greater sin. Let's look at the last two verses. We'll see two more points. They're going to come a lot faster. But let's see how to kill the immorality in our lives because we've been raised up with Christ. Point number two, be warned by the wrath of God. Point number two is be warned by the wrath of God. Look at verse six. Why kill this stuff? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, verse six says. Now, y'all, if you read the news... Every year you see the same kind of news. There's a weather forecaster on TV telling a group of people living on some island or coastal city that a hurricane is coming their way. But have you ever noticed that there's always a few people who, for whatever reason, ignore the warning and stay there? It's as if they don't believe the warning God tells you and me this morning, don't fail to believe the warning. 
Sins like the, the ones we read in verse 5 have consequences. Now, isn't it interesting, by the way, God could have spelled out here all of the danger that happens because of immoral sexual behavior. He could have talked about the breakdown of society and the spread of disease and unwanted pregnancy and emotional heartbreak and all the rest, and God didn't do it. You know what he said instead? Instead, God says one simple truth. Because of the idolatrous sins of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, the rest, the wrath of God is coming. It would be good for us to remember what the wrath of God is. Wrath is the right response of God to sin. While God's wrath is absolutely perfect, it's not pretty. Wrath is the burning fury of God. God's hatred for the evil things that we do and our sinful actions, all of them, show that we think of ourselves as superior to God. And our sin shows us that we think we have the right to do things our way regardless of what God wants. And God's right response to us choosing our way above his way is wrath. God says to us that the wages of sin is death. God has revealed to us in his word that hell is the proper and eternal punishment for those who die in their sin. God's wrath is the way in which God rightly and justly punishes the rebellion of mankind. And so the question is, do you believe in the wrath of God? Do you believe the warning? God has told you that his wrath is coming upon the world. His wrath is coming upon the world somewhat, for the way in which the world has taken his beautiful gift of sexuality and perverted it into something cheap and obscene. God's wrath is coming on, his, on this world for the way in which people have used and abused and discarded one another because of sexual sin. God's wrath is coming for the way in which we who wear his image have refused to allow our behavior to demonstrate God's glory in every aspect of our lives. And God's wrath is coming for all of the ways in which people have tried to dethrone the Lord and make themselves their own little kings and queens. Christians, let this remind you, please, that you want to stay away from sexual sin and from covetousness and from idolatry and all of its warms. Because if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, God doesn't have wrath left for you. God satisfied his wrath when he poured it out on the person of Christ on the cross. But we don't want to do the very things for which our Savior bled. Do we? We don't want to mock the grace of God. We who know Jesus have new hearts. God's made us alive when we were dead. And this is why we battle and do everything we can to kill the immorality in ourselves by the grace of God for the glory of Christ. But there's probably people even here who, who haven't yet become children of God. Maybe you're young, maybe you're old. But if you haven't turned from your sins and placed your trust in Jesus, you're not saved. You need to believe in the wrath of God because you're currently under that wrath. And if you die without Jesus, you'll spend forever in hell suffering the wrath of God for rebelling against him in whatever way you have. Believe in that but, and fear it, but don't despair because God offers you right here this morning hope. God says anybody who will let go of their sin and run to Jesus in faith will be forgiven. Jesus, the Son of God, paid the penalty for the sins of all of God's children. 
Jesus' sacrifice is fully sufficient to cover the sins of every single person who will ever come to him. Here's a question. Have you sinned? Of course you have. I have. Everybody has. Here's the question, really. Have you recognized Jesus? Have you confessed your sin to him? Have you trusted in his life, death, and resurrection? Have you asked him to save your soul? Be warned by the coming wrath of God. And let that drive you to Jesus before it's too late. Last point, really quickly. Live a changed life under the grace of Christ. Live a changed life under the grace of Christ. Look at verse 7. Again, we want to put these things off because the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, isn't it true that when you think about people in a church discussing sexuality and sexual sin, don't you get a picture of some smug Christian putting down other people for struggling in that area? Do y'all remember Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live years ago being the church lady? Looking at people going, well, isn't that special? And just judging people for being sinners. You know what? God removes from you and from me any ground for smugness right here. Because in verse 7, you know what God says to us? Right as you're going, yes, those people need to kill that sexual sin, those perverts, those immodest perverts. I hope you weren't thinking like that, by the way, especially not in that voice. But, man, we love to judge other people for walking in sins that we don't walk in, right? Whether immorality or impurity or passions or just covetousness. You know what God says? You used to do it too. You and I have been guilty of the category of sins in this list. At some point in your life, young or old, you have either actually done physically things that God commands you not to do, let your mind be filled with thoughts that it ought not be filled with, let your desires be stirred that have no right to be stirred, or just desired. To be the center of the universe. We're all guilty. So Christian, don't get smug. And don't you dare look down on others who are fighting a battle. Even if your struggle has been removed. If your struggle has been removed, by the way, praise God for that. But don't you dare think you're better than somebody else. We're sinners. So let's do this. Let's learn to help. And to love those who are less perfect than we see ourselves. And oh, by the way, let us learn to confess and repent of our pride. Because y'all, the only good in us is good Jesus gave us. And if you don't struggle with sexual sin, it's only because God is gifting you with not having to struggle with that. It's only by the grace of God. And guys, that comes with every kind of sin you can think of. I don't care what it is. Is it a drug user? Is it an aggressive, violent criminal? The only reason you're not that is because God has protected you from it. Please see that. 
How could Paul say that people in Colossae used to walk in those sins? Because Paul knows people. And he knows that they've come to Jesus. They used to walk in those sins, but now they've been saved by the grace of God and it's time for us to walk differently. If we've died to this life, if we've been raised up with Jesus, we are to put away the evil and dark ways of the world. Now, does that mean, does that mean that we give up all concept of sexuality? We just got to kill it all and live like really upset, frustrated monks. No, it doesn't. What it means is that we give up any illegitimate form of sexuality. We do not stoke evil desires. We don't relish dirty entertainment. We don't show off our bodies so that others will desire us. We embrace the truth of God. In marriage, sex is to be a joyful expression of love and covenant commitment. Sex outside of marriage always dishonors God. i got to say, guys, it is difficult to, to communicate on this topic without either coming across as dirty or prudish. You're going to fall in one of the ditches it feels like. But here's the thing. God created us. We are his. He knows what's best for us. He says that marriage is the only proper place for the expression of our sexuality. Many of us have failed. Many of us have bought into the world's lies. But thankfully, God has grace for everybody here today. Anybody here today can be forgiven. God calls you to be under the grace of Christ. Come to Jesus in faith. Confess your sin. Turn from it and begin to live a brand new life. Like we said at the beginning, fire is beautiful and fire is warming. But it can be deadly. The key is to have it in the right place so that it can be fully enjoyed. This is true of our sexuality. So let's fight to kill anything in our flesh that would lead us to sexual immorality. Let's remember and truly believe that the wrath of God is coming upon earth for our disobedience to God's commands. Let's get under the grace of Christ. And Christians, let's learn graciously to live new lives in every way. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, there's nothing fun about thinking about this topic. And there's nothing fun about thinking about the ways that we failed. My prayer is, God, that you will show us mercy and grace this day. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus that makes anybody here any different than anybody else. Would you kill in me any desire for immorality? Whether in any of us it's evil actions, dirty thinking, stirred desires, covetousness. Whether it's intentional or not, keep us from tempting others. Help us, God. Help us to be gracious and helpful to others we might better honor you. And Lord, if anybody here has not yet come to you for that grace, help them to do that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song. Uh, Maybe it will help us to honor our Lord more as we press forward. Turn in your song.